going to be in Luke chapter 9 this morning. Luke chapter 9, continuing our series, Jesus for Everyone. Luke chapter 9, I told you guys last week, kind of serves as, uh, if not the primary turning point in all of Jesus' ministry, uh, as Luke is telling us this story, it certainly serves as kind of the uh, the beginning of Act 2. So if you think about the, the book of Luke, you think through uh, what, we've, what we've covered so far, verse by verse, going through this book, the first three chapters or so are kind of just the intro, like introducing Jesus, here is this guy. So you have all the Christmas stuff there, the birth narrative, you have Jesus' baptism, you have uh, kind of the, the overall, here is Jesus. And then uh, Act 1 uh, is basically chapters, uh, kind of chapters four through eight, loosely, uh, is Act One, and what we have there is Jesus coming forward in his hometown Nazareth and saying, uh, "Here I am. I am the one that Isaiah has been talking about." And uh, and then we begin seeing Jesus do all these miracles. He starts healing people, starts casting out demons, starts calling out the Pharisees. He starts doing all of these type of things. That is Act 1. And then today, and well, starting last week and today, we have Act 2 of Jesus' ministry uh, that we will, uh, we'll, we'll kind of kick off. And so uh, it serves as a huge turning point as all that is, that is going on. Frame everything else that happens in the rest of the book of uh, Luke. So uh, you guys ever watch a movie, uh, when you get to the end, you get a piece of information that completely changes everything about the movie? Like you, you get to the end, maybe it's a, a, a plot twist and you're like, oh man, I didn't see that coming. Uh, or maybe it's just one where the, uh, where the, the, the director, the writer, whatever, the, the movie or the book, that they, they intentionally left out a small piece of information that had you known it would have completely changed the way you had read the, the whole book. I love those kind of movies. I think maybe the, 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 the biggest example of those that are at least consistently is the, the M. Night uh, Shyamalan movies. They're, they're famous for this. So like The Village Signs, I think Sixth Sense is probably the, the most famous of, uh, the, maybe the best example of this where people know it uh, really, really well. The, the thing about this is whenever you watch these movies or whenever you read books like this, once you know the plot twist, once you know that little bit of information, you can never experience that movie the same way again. The way you experienced it that first time, you will never have that experience again. Because the entire experience of that movie is built upon you not knowing these different pieces of uh, information. It's impossible. Now, in some ways, knowing that piece of information can enhance a reread or a rewatch of a, of a movie. It can kind of enhance your uh, watching of it. There's nothing quite like watching The Sixth Sense for a second time and realizing, hey, I'm an idiot. I should have seen this the whole time, and I didn't, right? Uh, there's nothing quite like that whenever you, you go through it and you wonder how you didn't notice these things. Well, when we read the Gospels, specifically here in the book of Luke, it's impossible for us to read these letters in the same way that the original readers would have read them. It's almost impossible unless you know nothing about Jesus, unless you've never heard of Jesus, you've never heard of Christianity, you've never heard of any of these things, unless you've never heard of any of it at all, it's impossible for you to read it with the same way the original readers would have. We know too much 
And at the same time, we know too little because we weren't there. We, didn't, we don't know all the historical kind of things that are happening. As much research has been done, we don't know all of it. So we know too much and too little at the same time. And it doesn't mean that we can't learn from or we can't enjoy uh, reading these, simply that our experience is not the same as the original reader's experience. Even more to the point, it, it certainly can't be the same as the actual people who are in the story living it, right? So our experience as we read through the book of Luke, learning about Jesus, is very different than the experience of, say, the demon-possessed man who learns about Jesus. Very different than, say, the Pharisees who are watching Jesus do these things and these miracles in real time. Very different than the apostles, than Peter, who is sitting there watching and following Jesus, learning from him, but, but, but learning and seeing all these things firsthand. Our experience is, by necessity, a very different Thing. And so whenever I read this, I, I simply, I, I, I so desperately want to try to appreciate the complexity of what these original seers and participants in the story of Jesus, I want to appreciate the complexity of what they are, what they are trying to comprehend that's happening right in front of them. How they can see these things and what do they, how do they make sense of it? How do they process it? How do they, what category do you have? I mean, what category would you have for seeing a blind man go from, uh, from never being able to see to being able to see immediately? What kind of category would you have from a guy that you've seen your entire life begging at the city gate to now being able to get up and go walk and run around town? Like, we don't have categories for this stuff. But these guys were seeing it right there in, in, in front of them. And so I want to, to try to maybe sympathize. I don't know if that's the right word. But, but try to put myself in their shoes and think, how would I process this stuff? What in the world would I do with this? They just saw their rabbi that they followed, the same one that they, they know so well, calm the storm that was about to sink their ship. What do you do with that kind of stuff? How, how, and then, and then I, I want to give a little grace whenever I read stuff, and I'm like, how did you guys miss this? This is so obvious. How did you guys miss this very obvious point in front of you that's going on with Jesus? And this morning, we're going to see maybe a little bit of the, the opposite. So, so it's easy to read the Gospels. I know we've all had this experience whenever you read through the book of, uh, the, the, the book of Luke or one of these other Gospels, and you see... Uh, the, the apostles do something stupid. Uh, and you're like, come on, guys, seriously? Like, we're going to read that when we get to the end of chapter 9 here in just, uh, just a, a couple of weeks. And it's like, come on. And especially Peter. Peter is well known for being the one who runs his mouth and says dumb things all the time. But I also think Peter doesn't quite get enough credit for some of the things that he does uh, as well. He, he, he deserves a lot of ridicule for saying dumb things. But uh, he also kind of picks up on some things. Uh, on occasion, he's not the knucklehead that we make him out to be. And instead, he's able to see in real time, which is the hard part here, uh, and identify things that others that had a front row seat to the ministry of Jesus just could not see. So what we're going to do is we're going to read a little bit here in chapter 9. We're going to bounce around just a little bit like we did last week. Uh, and, and then we're going we're gonna to see how this transition point here in Luke's gospel 
how it really takes a big turn for us today. We've already seen last week how Jesus delegates the work a little bit, right? For the first time, he's not the one doing the healings, but he sends out the apostles and he says, you guys now have the power that, that I had. You guys can go do some of this same stuff that I did. So that was a big transition. And then today, it's going to be a huge piece of information that will then change everything going forward, both for us as readers, but especially for the apostles, the original people who were a part of this. So let's start in Luke chapter 9, verse 7. And what we'll see is that Jesus' ministry was, was starting to really make some noise throughout Jerusalem and all of Israel. So Luke chapter 9, verse 7. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed, because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. And Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. So Herod is a different Herod than early in the book of Luke, the Herod the Great in the birth narratives, the Christmas stories. Uh, this is Herod the, uh, the Tetrarch, a son now ruling over Israel. He's, a, in case you don't know, kind of the, 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 the political climate. He's kind of a puppet king that is put there by Rome. And he says, the, the, Rome basically says, here's what we need you to do. Rule the people of Israel, not your people. Uh, but rule them and rule them in such a way that we don't hear anything about them. That's really what we want from you, Herod. We're going to give you this power, but here's what I expect you to do. So understand his position. He's hated by his subjects, the people of Israel, but he has tremendous power over them. He has the backing and the power of Rome over them. But his power is limited to whatever Rome gives him. So he only keeps power if he keeps Rome happy. That's the only way that he's able to stay uh, in power. And what does Rome want? He wants a peop- they want a people that shut their mouths and pay their taxes. That's what Rome wants out of Israel. Rebellions are bad, money is good. That's, that's basically all Herod needs to know. If Herod can keep Israel like that, then Herod will be in good standing with Rome and he will keep his power. If he can't, he will not stay king for long. If the rebellion doesn't take him out, Rome will. So whenever this teacher starts to make some noise, kind of out in the countryside a little bit, away from Jerusalem, when this teacher named Jesus starts to make some noise, starts to gain a following, starts to get noticed, uh, you you start to hear rumors about him doing things like bringing people back from the dead and and healing people, uh, people in power start to notice those kind of things. Uh, People in power start to say, what is going on here? This makes me a little bit nervous. Why? Because Jesus is a threat to the status quo. Uh, He's a threat to them. And so Herod starts to to hear about people being uh, healed, miraculous things happening, happening, and he's intrigued. He wants to know what is going on here. He wants to see all of this. We, we know that this is what he wants to see Jesus for uh, because when he actually gets to meet Jesus, which won't happen until Luke chapter 25, and we'll get there like, I don't know, a year or two from now. When we get to Luke 25, we'll see Jesus on trial to be crucified. And this is what happens, I say 25, 23. Uh, and this is, this is what we see here in Luke 23, uh, verse 7. This is, he's, Jesus is with Pilate. Pilate says uh, he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction. So Pilate says, wait a minute, Herod is the one that actually has power and rules over you, Jesus. I'm going to send you to Herod. 
who happened to be in Jerusalem at the time. And then verse 8, when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So we see here in chapter 9, Herod's like, man, I would love to meet this guy, Jesus. I would love to meet this guy. I would love to see him face to face. In fact, I'd love to see if he can do the things that people claim that he can do. Because if he can, that guy could be useful to me. And if he's not useful to me, he's a threat to me. And i got to figure out which one he is. And so when Jesus gets sent to uh, Herod's uh, court, whenever he gets sent to Herod in, in, uh, in chapter 23, Herod's like, all right, he's here, finally. This guy that I've been looking for, this guy that I've been hoping to see, he's here. Let's see what he's got. Let's see what kind of hocus pocus he can give me because I want to know if he is an asset or a liability. Is he going to be good for me or is he going to be bad for me? Listen, when Jesus was alive and even still today, there's no shortage of people that are interested in this Jesus guy. There's no shortage of people that say, tell me more about this guy. Maybe you, like Herod, are here this morning and you heard that this Jesus guy might be the source of, 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 uh, of, of help for you. That, that maybe he's the guy that you should come to that can kind of help you with your life problems. Maybe he's the guy that you can come to and he's the one that can kind of get you out of this fix. Maybe he's the one that you can come to. If you come to church, maybe you could set your life straight. Maybe this Jesus Jesus guy has got something for me. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you call yourself a Christian because you believe, like Herod, that this Jesus guy can do some great things. And after all, you respect him because he had to be a good teacher. And maybe he could even do some crazy stuff and maybe pull the wool over a few people's eyes. If you'll stick with me this week, and especially next week, I think what you'll see is that while questions are welcome and respect is appreciated, following Jesus is very different than being curious about Jesus. They are not the same thing. What Jesus will demand from us is far more than appreciation for his power and his ability. It will be far, far more than that because he is worth far, far more than that. And so what we're going to see today is what he's worth, and then what we're going to see next week is what he demands, right? So that's the the blueprint for the next two weeks. But for now, Luke just wants us to know what Jesus' deeds uh, have have made it all the way to the top. He just wants us to know that the the, the top of the rung here, that, that Herod himself, the king of the Jews, wants to see Jesus. So Jesus is not some small town country preacher anymore. He's made it, his deeds have made it to the top, and Herod wants to know what's up. Herod has eyes on him, so this is true from the beggars on the street to the kings in the palace. I think it's funny that Luke kind of includes Herod's response here. uh, When people start saying things like, it's John back from the dead, and Herod says, wait a minute, like John, the guy that I had his head cut off, that John? That guy is back from the dead. I don't know about you. And it doesn't say this specifically, so maybe I'm reading into this. Uh, but I, I don't know about you, but Jesus' miracles would have gotten my attention. Uh, but the idea that John's ghost was back, the guy who I killed, uh, I would really want to know what is up with this guy. Like, is this really the guy I had killed is back from the dead? Because that would make me more nervous than some guy that could heal the blind. Uh, and so, so, so Herod says, let me know what is going on here. Who is this guy? Because if he's the guy that I had beheaded, we've got bigger problems here. 
so that's all Luke tells us for now, though. He doesn't give us any more information. That's all he tells us. But Luke is making the point here. People are watching. People want to know who Jesus is. And do you remember at the very beginning of the Gospel of Luke, we haven't looked at this in a while, but he told us exactly why he is writing too. Do you remember this? Luke chapter 1, 1 through 4, I'll just read uh, the, the last th- verses 3 and 4. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. He wants this, this guy, Theophilus, uh, and certainly us, uh, to have certainty about who this Jesus is. That's why Luke is writing this. And so Luke gives us this account of all that's happening here uh, in chapter 9. And he's giving us all this information because he wants us to know with certainty who Jesus is. And so far, he's given us the the miraculous birth narrative, a dramatic start to uh, his ministry, accounts of multiple healings and casting out of demons, uh, a calming of the storm. He's implored us to listen carefully and to allow the, the truth of who Jesus is to penetrate our hearts, to take root in the soil of our hearts. He's gone out of his way to show us who Jesus is and specifically the power with which he operated. It's as if Luke is screaming at us at every turn. Do you see who this man is? Do you see what he can do? Do you see the power he has? Do you see who Jesus is? Don't miss him. Believe in him. And then you have Herod saying, just who is this guy anyway? Which is totally a rhetorical setup for what's about to follow in chapter 9. Jesus feeds the 5,000 and then in the aftermath, which we looked at last week, and then in the aftermath aftermath of this, Jesus asks a very loaded question to his followers, to his apostles specifically. It says that that this came after praying, so I imagine that that after feeding the 5,000, Jesus went away to pray, uh, and I imagine Jesus' prayer went something like this, Father, I have more to tell them, you know this, is Now the time. And the father replies back and he says, it's time. This is verse 18. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, this is Jesus, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? Maybe the most loaded question in history. Who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah. And others that one of the prophets of old has risen. And then he answered Then he said to them, I lied. Here's the most loaded question. So who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. Three verses packed with significance. Packed with significance. Who do you say I am? This is quite literally the most important question you will answer in your entire life. Who do you say Jesus is? The answer to that question, our answer to that question, will frame everything we do for the rest of our lives. I am not overstating that in the slightest. First, Jesus asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? The reports come back, John the Baptist, Elijah, a great prophet back from the dead. These are all good options, by the way. These are all good options. They acknowledge that Jesus is not just some other guy. 
He's not just some other rabbi. He's not just another charismatic preacher making some noise. He's clearly got something more going on here. So their, their mindset, they say, he's got to be somebody back from the dead because he's not like anybody I've ever seen. Look at the stuff that this guy can do. He's got to be somebody else. He's got to be John the Baptist or Moses or a prophet. Maybe he's the one promised to us. Maybe he's Elijah that we should be looking for. But it's not enough to give Jesus respect and say this guy is more than, than, he, than he looks. He's more than a man. We can't, we can't just kind of generally say these things. We have to get this one right. We have to make sure that we get this right. Who is this Jesus? And I can just imagine Jesus smiling as they respond and then saying, okay, okay, okay. But you guys, you guys know me. You guys are the guys that are with me. You guys have seen me in action. You guys have been with me in the trenches. You have seen it up close. You guys have eaten dinner with me. You guys have slept next to me. You guys have heard me teach and you have laughed at my jokes. Who do you say that I am? You guys who know me well, who do you say that I am? And Peter's answer Man, for us, it just rolls right off, right off the tongue like it's, it's such a simple thing. Peter's answer is stunning. He says, the Christ of God. I'm telling you, this is one of those things because we've seen the end of the movie. We have no appreciation for what just happens here. None. It hits so differently for us now because we know where things are going. Once you know the plot twist, then when the big reveal comes, it's kind of anticlimactic. You kind of move right past the big reveal. But don't miss what Peter just said here. This is it. This is the moment. This is the plot twist. This is where things take a massive change. It is a reply that comes out of nowhere. And it's exactly what the narrator wants us to see and to feel. And I find it fascinating to see how all of this plays out. I want you to to look at this with me. So far in Jesus's ministry, Jesus has never said these words. He has never said this. So Peter is not like, oh, I finally got what you taught me, Jesus. Jesus has never taught this lesson. So far, he's never used these words. We never hear him saying these things. Never, not once. In Luke's telling of the story, the word Christ is used in chapters 2 and 3 and 4. All right? So I want you to follow with me what happens. If you look it up in your, in your concordance and you follow the word Christ, in chapter 2, we have it attached to the birth narrative when you have the angels coming and saying, unto you into the city of David is born a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So you have the pronouncement to Mary, or or to the shepherds, where they say, Christ the Lord. So you have the word Christ there. It's to a bunch of shepherds, right? That's it. Jesus doesn't say anything about that. He's he's not, not even, like, he's just born. So this isn't Jesus giving an instruction here. Then in chapter 3, you have it uh, attached to John's ministry, when people are asking, is John the Christ? So not... The word Christ is used, not even attached to Jesus here. They're trying to attach it to John. And then in chapter 4, we have the word Christ used again. Luke chapter 4, verse 40. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on everyone and healed them. We looked at this uh, a couple of months, of, a mon- months ago. And the demons also came out, came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. 
But then he rebuked them and he would not allow them to speak. Why? Because they knew he was the Christ. It's the only other time that this word is used, Christ. And the only time that it's used is Jesus telling the demons, you shut your mouth. Don't you tell anybody what you know. You cannot say that around here. And I will not allow you. And the demons just obey. And I'm not sure if you picked up on that, but every time Jesus comes in contact with a demon, they're just like, okay, whatever you say, just don't kill me. Like, that's immediately their response whenever, uh, whenever the two come in. in, in. So, so, so this is it. The only entities so far that have recognized Jesus in action as the Christ are the demons. We know that they know who he is. They have no question who Jesus is. They know exactly who Jesus is. And it's because they know who he is that he shuts them up and he says, be quiet. He does not want that information getting out just yet. There will be a time and a place for that, but it wasn't at the very beginning of his ministry, which was in Luke chapter 4. So we go through all this stuff that Jesus does in, in, the, in these chapters. Four, chapters 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8. And we see Jesus assert his identity as a healer, as a man with authority over demons, as a man with authority over nature and storms, uh, as a man who has authority over sickness, as a man who has authority over death. He has all of these things, and he's happy to be known by all of these things. But he's just Jesus. He's not Jesus Christ. He's just Jesus. It's not till Peter's confession that the word Christ now is tied to Jesus. In our minds, we think Jesus Christ. That's just his name. First name Jesus, last name Christ. That is not how that works. Every, like that's how we know his name is, is Jesus Christ. But that's not his name. Jesus is his name. Christ is his title. Christ is a title. It's a title that means, in the Greek, anointed one. Which is how... In the, in the Hebrew, the Messiah was referred to. So when we say Jesus Christ, it's the same thing as saying Jesus the Messiah, right? So this is not like, his initials are not JC. It's, it's, it's Jesus the Messiah. This is how uh, this works. He was the one that the Old Testament prophets had predicted, that Isaiah had written about, that the Jews were waiting on. He's the one that was supposed to come and overthrow Roman rule and assert position as the king of kings and set his people free. That's who the Christ was supposed to be. And now Peter has says, says, you are the Christ. Now you can see why people like Herod and people in charge would be a little concerned if somebody who was supposed to be the one to come and overthrow Roman rule over the people of Israel, if that guy starts showing up and saying, I'm that guy. And that's why Jesus says, don't tell anybody this. But he's not even taught this at this point. For the first time, we see this title tied to Jesus. First time. And Luke doesn't really give us, give us any more info than that. Really, he, he keeps it pretty simple, in part because I think he wants us to move on in the narrative uh, to a couple of other key things that we'll see here in just a second. But Matthew says of this moment that Jesus said this to Peter. This is Matthew chapter 16, verse 17. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, Simon son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. 
Peter says and does some dumb things. There's no question about it. He's impatient, he's very hot, and he's very cold. He gets a bad rap for being super emotional and for doing uh, some of this stuff, and a lot of it's well-deserved. But right here, he nails it. Jesus hadn't told him all this. An angel or a demon hadn't come to Peter and shown him all of this. Peter had been watching. Peter had been studying. Peter had been comparing notes. He had listened to the teaching. And God had spoke to him and told him, pay attention to this guy, Jesus. He's not just another man. But he's not some guy back from the dead. He's the one. He's the promised Messiah. No one else was calling Jesus the Messiah. Just Peter. He's the only one that saw it up to this point. And Jesus says, you didn't learn this from anybody, not even me, Peter. The only way you could have known this, Peter, is if God the Father revealed it to you. He recognized Jesus for who he truly was. For Jesus, this is in some ways the high point. It's where he must have felt like finally they're starting to understand. I didn't even have to tell them, and he knew. Finally, it's getting through to them. This is a feeling that would be short-lived because very shortly he's going to be like, no, I'm not. They're still lost here a little bit. But at the moment, he's like, finally, it's getting through to them. And it's there. And Jesus is like, all right, this is good. This is good. We're heading in the right direction. So Peter makes this statement to Jesus, and immediately Jesus knows something else. So high point, yes. But look at the very next thing that Luke records for us. The very next thing that Jesus turns and he says to his followers. And it shows that this ministry of Jesus is about to enter into a very different phase. And these guys need to know what's up. Luke chapter 9 verse 21. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell these things to no one. saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Can you imagine just the, just the whiplash shock that these disciples must have felt? Peter confesses and he says, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah. And Jesus says, you're right, Peter. I didn't even have to tell you that. The only way you could have known that is my Father in heaven revealed it to you. And that confession, based on that confession, I will build my church. That truth is so central. I will, my entire mission is built around exactly what you just said, Peter. And they've got to be like, all right, here we go. All right, he's the Christ, the Messiah. Let's go. We're ready to fight. We're ready to go. And then Jesus says, and you need to know I'm going to die because of it. What? That makes, like, there's no category for that. The whiplash must have been just overwhelming. Again, we know the end of the story, so this part doesn't catch us by surprise. I mean, let me just read it again. It sounds so just kind of innocuous to us. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And then you just go right on to the next thing. In my Bible, that's got like a little heading that goes with it. And it just says, uh, Jesus again foretells his death. I mean, that's, that's, oh no, it just says, that's later, that's here in just a minute. It says, Jesus foretells his death. Like, it's just a, just a bullet point. Jesus says he's going to die. That should have like a heading that says, 
hold on just a second. What did you just say? Like, that's how that should come across. He's not talked about dying yet. He's not talked about being the Messiah yet. And he sure hadn't talked about coming back from the dead yet. All this is new information for the apostles. All of it. And then he says, now that you know all this stuff, don't tell anybody. Because it's going to cost me my life eventually. The whole exchange is fascinating. We know too much. So we don't appreciate what's, what's going on here. That is, a, that is a bombshell that he drops on them. And I guess one of the disciples shrugged it off like, give me a break. You're, you're going to be killed. The one that, that calms the storms, the, the promised Messiah that's going to overthrow Rome. You're going to be killed by the chief priests. I know those guys. They're old. They're not going to do that. You can take them. I promise, Jesus. They're like 80 and you're 31. Like you can handle them. I promise you can do this. I've seen you calm the storm. You can handle the 80-year-old guy. I promise. And, and they're like, there's just no way. It's not going to happen, Jesus. Luke doesn't tell us their reaction to, to Jesus saying this. Just kind of moves right on. Maybe they were just like dumbfounded. Like, what? Like so confused that they just kind of move past this. But for the first time, we have Jesus saying, guys, I, I know you think you know how this is going to go. But I'm going to tell you right now, this is going to go south for me in a hurry. And it's going to go south for you too. And you do well to prepare yourselves for it. But make no mistake, I'll come back from the dead three days later. Man, it's hard enough to wrap your, your, your mind around the fact that the Messiah that has been predicted for, for hundreds and thousands of years by your people is standing right in front of you. But now he's saying he's going to be killed and then come back from the dead? Like, how do you process something like that? Honestly, it's all too much for these guys. Luke gives us the info. He makes sure that we as readers are all on board with what is going on. Tells the apostles that they would do well to listen uh, as he prepares them for what this next phase of ministry is going to look like. For what act two of his ministry is going to look like. And then Luke just moves on. Drops the bomb and keeps on going. Which I think is probably what Jesus inevitably had to do too. In my mind, I see Jesus telling them like, Here's what's going to happen. And them just with these massively confused faces. And then Jesus being like, okay, I can see you weren't ready for that. Uh, we'll circle back to that. We'll, we'll come back and we'll, we'll cover this again. But I've got something I need to show you guys in the meantime. This is Luke chapter 9, verse 28. Now about eight days after these sayings, so just a little over a week after these sayings, he took with him Peter, John, and James, so kind of the leaders of the apostles, up to the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. That word departure is actually the, the word exodus. It doesn't really come through in English, but I think it's kind of interesting. Spoke of his exodus, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. And when they, uh, when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three, three tents, one for you, one for, Moses, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. 
uh, not knowing what he said. So like he was just kind of speaking out of, his, out of his head a little bit. And as he was saying these things, the cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days of anything that they had seen. So this event is known as the Transfiguration. There are so many layers of stuff here I can't even begin to touch uh, in this, this sermon. I don't think time will allow us to parse out all that's happening here. You can go back to our messages on Elijah and the Transfiguration comes up uh, a couple of different times there. Uh, but this is eight days after Peter confesses that, they, that he believes Jesus is the Messiah, that the crowds think he might be uh, Elijah or some prophet back from the dead. And Jesus knows that this is the moment that he needs to clarify a few things for his closest followers. So he grabs Peter Uh, James and John, the inner circle of the 12, and he says, come with me, I need to show you something. This idea, come with me, I need to show you something. This is what we call progressive revelation. What you see here is that Jesus is slowly revealing more and more of who he is to his people. This happens all throughout the Old Testament, it happens in the Gospels, and it happens even in the New Testament. As more and more, they are, we are able to see more of who Jesus is. We know more of who Jesus is than the apostles did. Why? Because we're on this side of the story, right? And so Jesus is progressively revealing more and more of who he is. So they go up to a mountain to pray. Evidently, Peter is uh, struggling to stay awake, and he prays. So some of y'all might find that encouraging if you struggle to stay awake in a sermon or when you pray. Uh, Peter is right there with you. When he finally realizes what's going on, he looks up, and he sees Jesus looking different than he had ever seen. His face uh, shone like light. His clothes were dazzling white like lightning. Uh, and having a, a conversation, and Jesus is having a conversation. Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, they're all just chatting it up, talking about, hey man, you'll be, you'll be leaving soon enough. Your exodus is coming soon enough. And they're just talking about it. Like they're just, they're just cutting up and, and, and talking. And Peter immediately says, I know what to do here. I know what we need to do. We'll build a temple right here, one for each of them where we can worship. Makes sense to me. I, I, I get why this is Peter's reaction. You, you will not find uh, a, a leader more respected in the history of Israel than Moses. You will not find a prophet more respected for his power and for what he did than Elijah. You have the two most respected figures in the history of Israel, and then you have the Messiah right there. Let's set up a temple and let's worship all three. And as soon as that happens, they, they're all gone. Why? Because Peter had seen what he needed to see, but he had, not, he had not correctly interpreted what he had seen. Why? Because three people didn't need to be worshipped here. Just one. Does anybody remember what happened to Moses whenever he went up to get the Ten Commandments and then he comes back down? When he came down the mountain, it says that they could not look at his face. He had to veil his face because his face was, was, was so like radiant from spending time with God that when he came down off the mountain, the people of Israel could not even look at him without, uh, without basically being blinded. But had Moses changed it all? Not at all. Not at all. He wasn't the one that was producing the light. He was simply reflecting the light that had shown in him. He was not the source of light. Hebrews 3 
chapter 5 says this. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. So Moses as a servant, Christ as a son. And we are his house if we indeed hold fast to our confidence and our boasting in our hope. So what is going on here in the transfiguration is that that, that the same, that same kind of phenomenon that happened with Moses is now happening with Jesus. But Jesus isn't reflecting light. He is the source of the light. Do you see the difference there? Moses is reflecting it as a, as, as a servant. Like, he's not even the one. He's just kind of absorbed it and then reflecting it. Jesus is the source of it. Why? Because he's not a servant. He is the son. His glory is on display in front of these three men. Moses and Elijah are just there to look, to, to, to look on as the Father makes the pronouncement that Jesus is his beloved son. Just like we saw at Jesus' baptism earlier in Luke's gospel. Hebrews 3 says, now Jesus rules as a son. So the whole point here in this, trans, I say the whole point, there's, there's so many points here. But one of the main points here in the transfiguration is that people are now able to see Jesus for who he is. Moses, as great as he was, was just a servant in the household of God. Jesus is the son of God. And his glory that radiates from him reflects that status. So this whole section here is meant to answer the question that's first kicked around by Herod and then is straight up by asked, asked by Jesus. Who is Jesus? Who do we say that he is? And the transfiguration is here to say, he's not, yeah, Moses is great, but look, Moses is here in a very different capacity. Elijah is great, but Elijah is here in a very different capacity. Jesus is different than even those guys. And Luke, through Jesus, gives us the transfiguration to answer that question, who is Jesus? He's not Elijah, he's greater. He's not Moses, he's greater. He's the Messiah, but he's not just the Messiah, some promised military king. He's the son of God. Don't miss all that is going on here. Peter makes a connection to what he's seen. He makes the confession that Jesus is the Christ, a confession that Jesus immediately recognizes in that moment as the beginning of the end of his time here on earth. Can you imagine hearing those words, like if you're Jesus? Like, yes, Peter, that's right. And knowing that's the beginning of the end. But if we're going to understand who Jesus is, we've got to get this right. He's the Messiah, but he's also the Son of God. And his glory far outstrips the greatest men that Israel has ever known. His face doesn't reflect the glory. It, re- it radiates it. You may have walked in here this morning happy, you know, new semester starting for school, kind of like in that transition phase, end of August, heading into the fall here. It's like a great time to kind of hit reset on life just a little bit for so many people. You walked in here and you're just like, I'm ready to turn over a new leaf. Maybe that's how you walked in here, just happy. And you wanted to hear a sermon that's like, all right, what kind of encouragement can I get this morning? You may have walked in here exhausted. 
absolutely worn out from all the punches that life has shown, has, has thrown to you. Maybe you walk in here, you've got a, a, a failing marriage, you've got kids that won't listen to you, you've got, you've got health problems, you've got all kinds of things going on. You walk in here and you're just like, I'm just here because I feel like I should be here. Pastor, can you give me some encouragement this morning? Can you, can you help me with this? I just, need, I just need something to help me face another day. And so we go through this message and you're just like, man, that's, that's, I appreciate the theology lesson, Pastor. Honestly, I do. But I don't, I don't know how to get through Monday. Listen, I appreciate that kind of response to this message on so many levels. But hear me. If Jesus is not worthy And if that glory is not true that they saw on that mountain, I've got nothing for you. If he's just John the Baptist back from the dead, or Moses back from the dead, or Elijah back from the dead, as amazing as that is, I got nothing for you. It's just not going to help you get through Monday. But if Jesus is who he says he is, if Jesus is who Luke says he is, then the only thing I can give you is this. And what we sang earlier is the only thing that I can implore you to. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Come and drink deeply of the glory of Jesus. And in that, that is the only place you will find anything that will be a balm to your soul. He is the exact imprint of the Father. He is the glory of God on earth shown to us so that we can worship him appropriately. This is who Jesus is. He is not simply a man to be investigated. He is not simply a man to just kind of help us get through the day. He is not even a sideshow to watch like Herod wanted. He's not the person you just bring over to give your side a little extra firepower when things go wrong. He's not the magic genie in a bottle ready to give us a little hocus pocus when things get sketchy in our lives. He is the Son of God, one member of the Trinity, and there is no response appropriate but to worship Him and Him alone. It's the only thing, it's the only thing that will be a balm to your soul. That is it. There are no substitutes. There are none that can stand to his side. Even in the greatest of the, 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 the greatest of, of Israel's history, none can compare. Jesus stands alone. Luke says, yes, he can calm the storm, he can heal the sick, he can cast out the demons. All, that is, all of that is good. All of that is good things, and it should make us marvel. But it's not even close to the most important thing about him. He is God, and we must worship him as such. And anything else is insufficient. Let's pray. Father, it is our confession that we are too quick to come to you. We are too quick to call on the name of Jesus, not in, 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 in worship, 
and to recognize him in his glory. But to simply call and say, hey, I need you for this. And we do not fully appreciate who it is that we call on. Father, give us ears to hear. Give us a heart to understand, to know who Jesus is, to rightfully worship him as your son. And Father, as we do that, I pray that you would heal our souls. Change our lives. And set us on a path to you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.